We're going to have a guest here in just a minute. But first and foremost, before we'll ask our guests the same question, but I have a question for you, Lamar. Okay. If you had to describe this film in three words without spoilers, what would they be? That's impossible. Why would you put me on the spot like this? How, no spoilers? Because that's fun. I don't know. What do you do? You know how games work? <sighs> this is a game. Well, the one thing that I was going to say during the, the spoiler free section is Brett Easton Ellis, who is an author who wrote Rules of Attraction, Less Than Zero, American Psycho. A couple of those got made into motion pictures. That is the closest thing that I could probably compare this film to give me the, those kind of vibes. So those are the three words that I will go with. Okay, very creative. I like it. How about you? Uh, mine would be decadent, hmm? twisted, and enigmatic. Ooh, I like mine yeah. better. I think cause mine is like I, all proper nouns. It's capitalized. I, I think that makes it a little class, but yours are good too. Your, yours oh, are like okay. $5 words. Yeah. Yeah. More you syllables. Know, we had to have some SAT words on the pot at some point, right? So as long as we're not doing analogies, I'm good. Okay. Well, thanks for patronizing me. So. Anytime, pal. All right, folks, welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Lamar. And thank you for joining us for our first app of 2024. So Ooh, happy, new happy New Year. Happy New Year. Same us, plus a guest actually. So we have a special appearance by our dear friend Taylor, who is a colleague of ours and also fellow film fanatic. You know, Lamar always says what a cinephile I am. And I and I I am ish, but so is Taylor. I would I would describe Taylor the same way as well. So we are so happy to have you. Thank you for coming, Taylor. I'm excited to spend the last day of the year with y'all. Now I get to be on on the pod with two cinephiles and sound even dumber than I usually do. This is going to be great. Listen, it, you know, it's par for the course. This is what we do every week. Kumar, it's fine. No. At least I'm not drinking Frangelico or Frangelica this week, so Skylar can't <laughs> judge me about that. But You're right. You're right. Speaking of drinks, what are we drinking? Let's make the rounds. Uh, Taylor, you're the guest. You tell us first. What are What's your bev? I am drinking um, tequila reposado on ice. Ooh, that's because you just got back from Mexico, right? You were like, I'm still in tequila mode. But see, I've been very obsessed with Reposado lately because I discovered this drink, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Have you all heard of this? I've heard the name, but I don't remember. grenadine, lime, Mm, and there's mm -hmm. like mint and jalapeno in there. And so I've been obsessed with Reposado. Reposado And because I got back from Mexico. And because you've been drinking it for days, then why switch now, That's really? Right. You know? <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. Exactly. I love it. Okay, well, good choice. Good choice. Lamar, what you got? Well, we are going to avoid spoilers for the first 10 or 15 minutes of today's pod. So I can't say everything that I'm drinking today because I feel like it would ruin things from the movie. Interesting. But it's also we're recording this on New Year's Eve and I'm going out tonight. I'm trying to not spend $300 on booze. So I am drinking Desert Door, which isn't quite tequila or mezcal, but it's a similar beverage. Uh, it mm-hmm. comes from the Sotol plant. I was going to say uh, Sotol, so, right? Yeah. Yes. So I'm having a margarita with that in it here with tahini on the rim. But just to get the day started, I've got a little bit of salt here. Ooh. And then I've got a shot glass full of it. So here comes the burn. So here's to you, Salt Burn. Cheers, oh y'all. Oh my God. Look at you so on theme. Cheers to well that. Well played. Well played. I love it. I also love that it's in a deep Eddie vodka glass. That feels well, a little. I'm a very little bit classy, like cheating. classy person. Oh, 
I love it. Okay. Well, you guys both did great. Uh, I think I have something to bring to the table as well, I will say. So it is New Year's Eve, to your point, Lamar. And they drink a lot of this in the film, which I don't think is too much of a spoiler. A lot of bubbles. So I'm back with the bubbles. But one, a baby bubble in a little bottle, which is one, adorable. But two, with our brand new drink. And we watch things koozie, courtesy of my dear Skylar, who got this for me for Christmas. So cool. That's like the Uh, best Christmas. (laughs) I know, isn't it? I was like, I texted Lamar immediately. I go, oh my God, we have merch. (laughs) So Uh it's so cute. It has our little slogan on it too. So yes, cheers to Skylar and cheers to you guys. Where can people buy those? And are they $50, $100? How much are we charging? Personally, you can buy them off of me. uh, And (laughs) I have a limited quantity. So I think I'm going to start the bidding at 50 yeah, fifty bucks. That feels good. And now share address for where people could just come and pick it out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's so a stellar for, deal, to be honest. For fifty dollars, you get a koozie plus Mackenzie's home address. Listeners, now is your chance. <laughs> yikes! Yikes! I feel like we opened up a can of worms that I did not agree to. Actually. So. <laughs> okay. Well, Taylor, as a welcoming gift, I already talked to Lamar about this. So before we get into all the nitty gritty of this film, which is going to leave us plenty to talk about. Uh, we wanted to ask you what I asked Lamar when we first started today, which was if you could describe this film in three words with no spoilers, what would you say? This is a hard question, isn't it? I know. I told yeah, you. This I is told little... you. So well, what's funny is the first word that came to my mind was delicious. Ooh. But you have to follow that up with dirty. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and British. Feel- British. And British? That's, you know, that's, yeah. accurate. that's super accurate. That's what I would do. I love I how literal that is. Those words. I yeah. love that. Delicious, dirty, British. British. Ooh, that is a yeah. good selection. Okay, well. Uh, <laughs> you, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, Lamar, share yours. So, I thought yours was also funny. Well, I'm not sure how familiar you are, Taylor, with the author Brett Easton Ellis, who wrote American Psycho, Rules of Attraction. Both those got made into films. And that is the vibe that I got from this film without giving anything away. That vibe of just high culture, but sort of a a weird situation is is what I gathered from it on first watch. Yeah, Yeah, which I thought was clever. You know, uh, mine are decadent, twisted and enigmatic. Or what I went with. So, that's yeah. very good. Thank you. Thank you. Apparently, I uh, passed my SATs. So that's all. That's all yeah, we I need to know. Well, um, well, since you're new here, and actually, this is kind of a new format to us, we wanted to give you the quick lay of the land. We do have a spoiler-free section for all our folks who still haven't seen it, even though we gave them a heads up last week. But if they haven't, they will have a few minutes where we keep them safe of spoilers, and then we will go into the nitty-gritty. So we want to share our reviews, our initial thoughts without any, you know, spoilers. We're going to share some basics about the film and then we're going to get into the weeds with it. And we'll tell the the listener to turn around, don't drown in Texas terms. And and then we will get into all the spoilers. So if that sounds good to y'all, we'll get going. And yeah, I'm clean. I think I'm in. Yeah. You think, well, you're listen again. You brought this up twice now. You're stuck. You know, you have to stay. Taylor can leave if he wants, but you can't. <laughs> so you, it's okay. like asking a child a question that you don't actually want the answer to, like yeah. a rhetorical question. You shouldn't do that with me. Just tell me we're going to podcast. We're going to podcast, Lamar. Thank Shush you. it. Okay, there we go. 
So really quick for those who have not for maybe not seen this film or maybe only seen a trailer or don't know much about it. Quick, quick, quick summary. Struggling to find his place at Oxford University, student Oliver Quick finds himself drawn into the world of the charming and aristocratic Felix Catton, who invites him to Saltburn, his eccentric family's sprawling estate for a summer never to be forgotten. So I know it's short and sweet, but we could, we can't say much more, you know? <laughs> That's how you have to keep it. I went into this completely blind, knowing nothing except for maybe a couple of cast members. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way. Just knowing those few details is enough, you know? Mm-hmm. So have you seen the trailer? No, I hadn't seen the trailer. I just heard from people, hey, go see it. It's great. The The less you know, okay. the better. And I will say up okay. front, it's not a movie for everyone. I am by no yeah. means saying every single person listening, listening should go see this. We'll get into, you know, the spoiler section of who this who would really enjoy this. But I think it's uh, not, not necessarily a unique film. I think you can compare it to other films, but it is definitely... A lot different and a lot more than what I was expecting. Yeah, yeah, it, it's quite different. And I don't think uh, I don't think the trailer gives a lot away. You know, like that's even if you yeah. had seen the trailer, it's a it's just a lot of imagery that is really yeah. intriguing, I think. But it doesn't give a lot away, I don't think. So it probably wouldn't have helped you much anyway. But Taylor, for your information, I sprung this on Lamar at the end of our last pod. I was like, by the way, here's what we're doing next week. So, uh, I guess we should explain also part of why Taylor is here is we had a lot of thoughts about this offline uh, that I thought were very important to bring into the pod. So just so you know, for some context, we we wanted to give Taylor a voice as well, because he has some very interesting points, some interesting points. I do have okay. thoughts. Yeah. You do, you do. Um, <laughs> so real quick before we dig into said thoughts, the the major key players here. So this film is written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who is a British actress, director, producer, writer, all the things, Queen Bee. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. She, if you don't know her or are not sure where you know her from, has done several things. As an actress, she was in The Crown uh, as Camilla Parker so Bowles. Mm-hmm. And Killing Eve, if you've ever seen that, she wrote Killing Eve along with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And she also had her directorial and writing debut in her film just before this, which was Promising Young Woman. Uh, and you'll see a couple of repeat characters there and some themes I think are kind of similar. But she's been around the block for a while and just doing really consistently incredible work. Uh, so that's who we have kind of leading the show here, which is, I think, kicks us off great. You know, yeah. I she also I found out had a bit part in the Barbie movie. She played yeah, Midge. Midge, and I was yeah. like, what? I wonder if that spurred also because of the themes of the Barbie Barbie film, which Margot we haven't talked Robbie about yet. Is a producer on. Barbie. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So um, I thought funny. maybe because of the themes of the Barbie film, feminism and whatnot, it was like, oh, we have this female director who just put out this incredible promising yeah. young woman movie. Let's pull her in. Or if it was more like a buddy-buddy thing. So that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'm sure it's both, right? Like, that's why those yeah. folks align, yeah. right? They're both trying to do similar projects. And uh, and yeah, Margot Robbie has gotten really into production and I believe started her own production company before she started Barbie. And anyway, she is producing both films. And so she actually came to set after Barbie wrapped to kind of get the lay of the land. And then also, yes, Emerald did make that kind of cameo appearance in, in Barbie as well. So yeah, they're supporting each other's work. Women supporting women. I love it. There you go. Yeah. Well, speaking of cast, we have a few a few killer cast members, not all of them known. We've got a lot of newer folks or like people pretty young in their career, but we've got some some classic standouts as well. So we've got Barry Keegan, 
who you may know him from Banshees of Inishirin, if mm-hmm. you saw that last year. It's Incredible sensual. film. If you haven't seen it, you gotta. It's hilarious. It's poignant. It's fascinating. Um, and he's in that as well with a really different character, too. So it's cool to see his range, I think. Also, also Jake, in Killing Killing of a Sacred Deer, he mm-hmm. was really good in oh, that. And he was, had a yeah. smaller part in Dunkirk, right? Yeah, he was oh, he, he yeah. was kind of like a, you know, foot soldier type of guy, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. Nothing major, but he was there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of made the rounds and shown some range as well uh, throughout his work. And Jacob Elordi is the object of his obsession in this film, Felix. And he's kind of younger, too. I think he's in Euphoria is probably what he's most well known mm-hmm. for. Um, I feel like he's ob- in everything. And Priscilla, he would just play Elvis. Oh, that's right. Um, that's I right. I feel like he got good attention for that. And he pulls off a really good British accent. I guess. And he if does. they ever make a, a movie about the All-American Rejects, like a biopic, I feel like he could play the lead singer because that's the vibe that I got from this. He Long does. He really, he, it's so funny you say that. <laughs> I was going to say he looks like him. And, yeah, no, he he is a, such a great actor and he pulls off a really good British accent to your point. He is Australian, so it's not that far off. But, okay. Um, but he, but Keegan is bra- mm-hmm. is Irish, and he also pulls off a, a pretty good accent. Um, and I think he had to specifically get a like a Liverpool accent, which is a really unique accent in in Britain. And so he had to like spend a bunch of time in Liverpool, like trying to hear and learn the accent. So they both they both do great accents here. And then we have Rosamund Pike too, who is actually British, a genuine gem who has done nothing but incredible work over and over and over again. You probably know her most famously from Gone Girl, but she has quite the range as well. Mm-hmm. She was in Pride and Prejudice. She was in Hostels. She was in A Private War, Barney's version, all kinds of incredible work that's all very different and wide ranging. Um, not to be typecast as the Gone Girl character only because she's super, super talented. And then we have Richard E. Grant, who plays the kind of patriarch here. And he is, he doesn't make a huge appearance, honestly. He's here a couple of times, but but they are key moments. They're key he moments. He might be my favorite part of the yeah. movie. Like, I think the parents, him and Rosamond, are probably my yeah. favorite part of the film without giving anything away. And he's been acting since 1983. Mm-hmm. And even when I looked at his, I was like, well, surely I've seen him in stuff. You know, character actors, mm-hmm. they get around, but... I think I might have seen two things that he's been in the last 40 years. So the fact that this was the first thing that really I was like, oh, this guy's great. That that was. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He's he been in a lot of stuff. Forget you. He's yes. Melissa McCarthy. He's so mm-hmm. funny and good. He's in that. so good at okay. that. He yeah. plays he plays opposite her so well. And he there he's, again, yeah. such a character actor that it's a totally different type in that film. Uh, but yeah, yeah, he's kind of that. Uh, you know, kind of on the walls uh, type of character. Mm-hmm. He was in Star Wars, though. Like, he was in Rise of Skywalker. Yes. Um, the best he, one. The, the best one. Okay, I'm not getting into all that. Listen, we're not opening up a fucking can of worms here. Okay, That's a Jesus. whole other yeah. Yeah. episode. Yeah, a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I agree with you. Rosamund and, and Richard E. Grant are like, the recurring mm-hmm. comic relief throughout. Yes. I think they're 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 gems. But uh, a new player we have is Allison Oliver, who plays Venetia. This is her first major role. Like she's done some other very, very small stuff, but it's her first like feature film role. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, yeah, I think really knocks it out of the park. And that blew um, my mind because I I could have sworn when I first saw her on screen that I knew her from something. And then I went she to her looks IMDb very and I'm familiar. Like, yeah, 
I thought she has a little bit of the Samara weaving, like in the face, a little bit, mm-hmm. but she has a look to her and the performance she puts on in this. I was blown away that it was her first big feature. I didn't know her from anything either. And she's amazing in the movie. Yeah, I think she's mostly done like shorts and like TV appearances. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. yeah so she's new to the scene. And then another one who's not here for very long, but is I think kind of funny is you and Michael, who uh, Mitchell, Michael, who uh, plays Michael Gabby. You and Michael Mitchell, Michael. Yeah. That who does guy. he play? He's my you, <laughs> you and Michael. No, I still can't get it right. I quit. It's Ewan Mitchell who plays Michael Gabby. Whew, okay. Man. Okay. Okay. He's the nerdy awful. character in case you need a refresher who's like <laughs> math obsessed, but he's hilarious. Mm. Uh, and I didn't know where I knew him from. And it turns out he is in House of the Dragon as Eamon, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, with the mm-hmm. eye patch, like one of the Targaryens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, a whole other con. I was like, recognize the victim and figure it out. It was so weird. No eye patch, yeah. no bleach blonde long hair. Yeah. yeah. A bit of a different look. Yes. As the interesting of a character. Yes. Yeah. Different kinds of assholes is really what he did. Yeah. Very different yeah. asshole characters. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then we've got another fun character in uh, Duncan, played by Paul Reese. We're going to get into Duncan, but he he makes a very interesting appearance kind of throughout. Mm-hmm. And then finally, a bit of a cameo by our ever-beloved Carrie Mulligan, yeah. who plays of and is credited as for dear Pamela. If you did yes. not know, I that she, know is, that she is in credited the as poor dear Pamela. <laughs> I looked it up again because I was like, well, she's like Pamela or Patricia. I can't remember her name. And I looked at it and it's literally poor dear Pamela, which is what intentional what Elspeth <laughs> always calls her yeah so anyway it, yeah. it works gives me so, high so well. hopes of, for Emerald Fennel because I, I really enjoy it when directors find actors and actresses that they sort of latch on to and they have a vibe with you know mm-hmm. Scorsese's done it with De Niro and with DiCaprio Tarantino does, does it with a bunch of folks yeah, yeah. and so it's cool that she you know Carrie Mulligan gets a part in this after being the main character in Promising Young Woman fun fact yeah. she actually picked her role she was asked to do another role, which they did, did declined to share which it was. So I would be interested to know what it is, but they declined to share what it was. She was offered a different role, but she had read the script and she asked to play Pamela. So, oh, that's um, so funny. Yeah. And then Emerald let her do that. But yeah, fun fact, she also has worked with Rosamund Pike multiple times. Oh, um, okay. So she was in Pride and Prejudice with her and she was also in an education with her. So it's, okay. it's kind of like all of it. Again, women supporting women. Bringing it back, bringing them to the same projects. I love it. It's it's awesome. So I hope they originally wanted her to play the butler. That would have been fun. I'm sure that's what it was. You are on point. I'm sure that this classic English estate was like, you know what we need? We need a woman butler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are the key. I think those are the key ones, unless there's yeah. any major ones that I y'all can think of that I missed. But I thought those were the the big the big ones, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last little nugget I'll give you is that we are early into award season, but it has already begun. For Saltburn, mm-hmm. they have been nominated for a couple Golden Globes, including Barry Keegan, who was nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actress, and Rosamund Pike. So, telling for possible future noms, maybe. I think there's more to come. Personally, yeah, yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed. There are some similar movies that have come out in recent years of sort of trials and tribulations of the wealthy, and just these sort of like very obscure removed from society situations that have been happening and i won't i won't name them until we get to the spoiler section but it is nice that movies that are a little out there and different can still get nominated for these types of awards glad you said that surprises me about the movie too is especially after seeing it 
Because when I went to see that had that awards buzz already and after seeing it, again, I would say provocative was a word that you could use to <laughs> mm-hmm. describe it. Yeah. And it surprises me how embraced it is by so many different awards because of that. Yeah, because I think you have some really, you know, controversial mm. moments in this film that are hard to ignore. Um, mm-hmm. So with yeah. all that in mind, we touched along the edges there. We can give a quick spoiler free review. I would say, you know, kicking us off. I thought it was beautiful. I feel like we say that a lot on this pod, or at least recently we say that a lot on this pod. But I thought it was beautifully shot. Like the cinematography of this is incredible. Um, uh, And their set design and the costume design is really thoughtful and intentional. And, And I read a couple articles about that, actually. And to hear like really the reasoning that went into it was really fascinating. Um, And then the set of the actual house, obviously, is this incredible, you know, English manor kind of thing. And it really holds true to bringing this kind of classic vibe of this history and this really generational wealth, but with this Uh modern story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it kind of wove all those things together really beautifully. And the writing really complemented it in that way and felt like it took all of those things into account and was really intentional with that. So, again, credit to Emerald Fennel where it's due. I thought it was really well done. It's, as as Taylor said, I'll take your word, pr- very provocative. Yeah. And you have to be open-minded to watch it, I would say. You can't probably get through it and enjoy it if you're not. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be my my quick and dirty spoiler-free review. How about y'all? Um, I agree. I think it was totally gorgeous. I have to say, when anything, I don't know what aspect ratio or whenever it was filmed in, but it's, it's not widescreen, right? It's 4-3, so yeah. I went to film school, but I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so like whenever something like that happens you always wonder like how intentional is that they have to make that a decision and I and I always am afraid that I'm going to be distracted by it and I was not distracted by it me and either even with how gorgeous all of the sets were and everything I was like why would you want to limit it but it just totally makes sense and it's still gorgeous in a very unique way because mm-hmm. of that Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the costumes, too. And the house mm-hmm. is almost like a character, too, when you're talking yes. about that generational wealth. Like, it, there's so many cool parts to that house. Um, and But I think that generational wealth also comes in through all, all of the costumes, which I thought were really great. And you get all this fun between the school that they're at and then at Saltburn and the juxtaposition mm-hmm. between yes. those. Um, they did a really great job. That and the acting is also good. Like, what a great ensemble! Yeah, I love a good ensemble. Yeah, they um, all bring something so to fun. it, something unique yeah. and special. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I all- did. I I loved all of that, but I did walk away from the movie slightly disappointed. Ooh. Yeah, I remember that. That's that's why he's here, y'all. That's why he's here. <laughs> I went in with an I had an expectation. So, like Lamar, because you didn't go Emerald, in with right? an expectation. Oh, okay. Yeah, primarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's kind of, yeah. I don't know how much I will be able to get into that before we can talk spoiler. We'll, you know? we'll, we'll save it for the spoilers because it's juicy and we have lots yeah. of thoughts on it. Like you yeah, weren't, yeah, you yeah. weren't a fan of when the zombies showed up. Oh shit, spoilers, guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a real yeah. surprise. You know, that was the last 10 minutes to, of the I movie. Who sees that fit. coming? <laughs> oh, weird left hook. Yeah. yeah. So for me, I'll second and third everything you guys said. I think visually it's it's a great film. Uh, very young director, obviously, but I, I'm starting to get a feel for the way that she 
shoots things, the way she visualizes it, the way that she cuts and ma- puts you on edge in some scenes. And we'll get more into that. But I love I love the quick cuts that kind of ramp up anticipation a little bit and anxiety. So visually, yeah, great, great performances. I don't think there is a weak link in the cast here. And I think the last thing that I would say for me personally is, you know, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but having sat through it for two hours and 12 minutes, I walked away happy that I had spent that time. Again, I don't think this is going to be a movie that everyone loves. I think it's going to be very divisive. And there's also, as Mackenzie said, some moments that depending on the kind of cinema that you're into might not sit well or you might find off-putting. But I think that I came out of it grateful that I had seen something so different. I don't know that it's going to be a recurring view of mine to want to watch this over and over again, but I did overall really enjoy the film and the humor too. Very fun. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Oh, I love it. Okay, so ratings really quickly. Uh, going backward, Lamar, what's your rating? Based on all that, and especially the comedy, I don't think there was a five-minute stretch where I didn't laugh out loud or at least chuckle to myself at least once. I'm going to give it like an eight and a half. I think it's really good. Not perfect, but really good. Look at you. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Damn. Okay. So I'm usually the Russian judge, so it's which means that I'm the mean judge. Sorry, Taylor, to translate. Um, and But he was the mean one last week, so I'm excited to see him being nice again. Okay. okay. Uh, you were pissing Taylor. off all of our Russian listeners. I know. <laughs> Russian listen, means mean here in America. Listen, we have no <laughs> Russian listeners yet. I've checked. Okay, they're fine. It's fine. Uh, oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. No, we pissed off Norway already, though. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Taylor, what about what about you? What's your rating? I think I'm going to give it a six out of ten. Ooh, see? Um, I love it. Because you can't deny that it's well made, but I can't deny my dis- my slight disappointment. Okay, well, we'll get into the slight disappointment because I want to know the root of so that. so many questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say I'm going to come like right in the middle of y'all actually. So I had gut check. I, I've explained this to Lamar, but for your benefit, Taylor, I am like really bad at relational ratings. So it could definitely oh, be that sure. like one of my favorite movies is rated lower than one of these in real time because it's very much I a gut check. Uh, and my yeah. gut check is like seven and a half, eight mm-hmm. uh, it, okay. is what I would say generally. And it is because of some specific moments in the film. But what I love about the film is all the external references again won't give any spoilers now but there's so many and i just love that and it kind of ticked it up to like probably like an eight for me yeah so we got the range here today i like it there's no fours though so we're all kind of like (laughs) generally you know trending positive so i love that for us if it what was the there was another set of movies when we did our christmas episode we talked about how all, all the ratings when you go like they're between like a six and a nine and i love those kinds of films because everyone agrees that they are watchable and worth seeing, but some right. people will yeah. definitely love or hate them more than others. Yeah. 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 I think that's fair. Okay. Are we ready to turn people away now? I'm ready if y'all are. So I'm always ready yeah. to turn people away. <laughs> this is a All movie right. that you have to dig into. Yeah, yes. you have to dig <laughs> yeah. into it. And I'm fucking ready. Okay. But just so... to be clear, we are all saying go see the movie, right? Yeah. As long as you're okay, oh, as absolutely. long as you're over absolutely. and you're allowed it's... to see R rated films. It, yeah, if and you're you of have a, a prime sur- subscription, you have a prime yes. subscription or you can see it in theaters or mm-hmm. you're overage or whatever. All these are key takeaways. But I would say, like, you have to be open minded would be my absolutely go see it. But if you are somebody who is easily offended or at all prudish, this mm-hmm. is not for you, for sure. I would say yeah, just quick asterisk true. there. 
Okay, turn around, jump around, kids, as we like to say <laughs> here on the pod. Uh, spoiler time. So let us dig in. I so want to kick four it. pansexuals w- walk into a mansion. No, just kidding. <laughs> Listen, it's not far off. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> I was like, it was pretty close, actually. Like, to continue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Continue. I want to hear the rest of the summary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, that's all I have. That's, that's literally my only punchline for the entire episode. Okay. Bathtub. Oh, my God. The bathtubs. We're going to get there. Okay. Well, to kick us off, I would say. Um, you know, this character, our main character is is Barry's character of Oliver or Ollie. Um, mm-hmm. And Ollie is starting at Oxford. And there is a very clear class separation of students, right? Like there's a scholarship student, which is Ollie. And then there's all this generational wealth and this, you know, titles and money and all the things that is from everything I've heard, I'm not British, right? But everything you hear, both pop culturally and and from a anecdotal standpoint, does seem to be rampant in mm-hmm. Britain still to this day. And so it's interesting to see that play out almost immediately, you know, mm-hmm. in the film. And you see kind of that that separation. Um, but what is interesting to me is that you're getting kind of two versions of him just to start. Because he's mm-hmm. already narrating the film and he's talking to somebody and you do see him. But it's very in close. It's very close up. And you don't know exactly where he is. And there's lots of ways that you can interpret that. So I wanted to start there because he's narrating us a very different version of himself that we see literally juxtaposed against him right away. Um, So I would love to hear what you guys thought about that first shot, right? Like he's clearly somewhere telling this story to someone. What did you think it was? I think what surprised me about the first shot or maybe what I was more focused on was like the idea of the narration. I don't think I necessarily t- dope into it as much as you did, but I mm. see, I totally see what you're saying, Mackenzie. But I was thinking like the voiceover narration reminds me of yeah. like a type of movie, mm-hmm. I think, right? And like that kind of genre with the reminiscing about the ideal past where you, so then you know that something is amiss, which to your point, right. I guess, that also signifies that, right? Um, where you're like, something's uncomfortable and something's not right here. So yeah. it sets you off with that. And I'm trying to remember how he looked because he also looked I can give you a refresher because we're in different. spoiler zone. Didn't he so look he's, like finer? He's got a slick like really hair. Easy. His yeah. hair is kind of slick yeah. to got the like side. He's in his suit jacket yeah. and he's in front of a window that's kind of yes. backlit with blinds, but you can't really tell where it is. That's, and it's mm-hmm. very, yeah. you are only honed in on him just that he's in front of a window somewhere and you can't tell where. So yeah. Yeah. But I agree yeah. with you. I think it does immediately make you curious. Of yes. like yeah. somebody's about to tell me Unreliable a story. Narrator. Like, yes, that's that's the key term in this entire film, and we'll get into that. But the unreliable narrator is is key here, and I, I the interesting choice to show the shots of what we're going to end up seeing in the film at the beginning. Like we see uh, through yeah. his eyes, quick clips to these different memories of his interactions with Felix. Mm-hmm. Thought that was an interesting choice to kind of tease some moments, but not show you. The significance or the context of when they're happening, and they're and some so of them, quick. yeah, and some of them were a little. When you get to that moment in the film, you're, you're like, like, "Oh, oh my this God. is what's happening." Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that too, and I noticed that more on the rewatch because you know what those are now. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, so I did see it in theaters, but then I watched it again actually this morning, and That's so nice. I was like that stood out to me so much even more than I think on the first watch because I was like oh my god they're showing some like for real shit that goes down you know um but yeah I think it does lend to 
an unreliable narrator because the first thing that he is telling us is how much he wasn't in love with Felix. Mm-hmm. And he is, yeah. it's kind of the lady doth protest too much kind of vibes, right? Of like, <laughs> you are protesting way too hard on this for this to be true. Like, you already yeah. have lost your credibility as a narrator <clears throat> from second one, I think. And the shots, like, whenever he's saying that, right? They're glowy and pretty mm-hmm. and this angelic being. So, yeah, I agree. Very I even read it. I even read it as someone who's, you know, obviously we've all watched a lot of films. When I have the narrator telling me something and I don't immediately believe them, I start looking for holes and I start looking at it like usual suspect style. So my initial instinct 20 minutes into the film was, oh, is he making this all up? Is this all in his head of how he was obsessed with this person and this all played out and now he's getting invited to the estate? But obviously that's not the case. So it's interesting to see it play out and what eventually happens. So I'll tell you all what I thought because we've already all seen it now. So I thought he was being interrogated by police. And so like I kind of went into it as I thought this unreliable narrator had done something really bad for all the reasons because he's like, I didn't love him. It's like, okay, bet you Mm -hmm. Uh, did. And so I immediately was like, okay, he did something to this person. I like I just. Yeah. thought that immediately like he hurt this person he killed this mm-hmm. person he whatever or he's at and least I, suspected of it or he's at least suspected of it but i mean i just again i didn't believe him immediately didn't believe him so i thought that he had done something to this person and was being interrogated by police so that yeah. sort of informed my entire like first watch um and so that was really interesting to re-watch it without that in mind and it, it does give it a little bit different lens but um but yeah i think that this starts off with a really interesting Uh, set as well with Oxford of, you know, they're going to school and you see this immediate image of this really nerdy boy who, again, is the total opposite Mm -hmm. of this narrator, right? He's like stiff and pressed, you know, scotch guarded slacks Mm -hmm. and his school scarf and everything. And he's like an uber nerd, which I really felt for him because I was like, I'm a nerd. Like, I get it. I respect it. Uh, But he's getting made fun of immediately, you know, and and we see um, what's his name? Farley immediately Mm -hmm. like he hasn't said any words to farley he's just walked past him and farley's already being a dick to him and i think and we'll get into it more later but i think the reason that he doesn't like him as much as he doesn't from day one is he sees enough of himself in him they are both Mm -hmm. cloying for the same Mm -hmm. spot in this person's life right they want to be felix's right hand man and they want to have access to this family to this wealth to this power and it's a rat race for who's gonna win right and they seem great yeah, and he can see the the how disingenuous Ollie is because he's the same, you know? Yeah. And that's why he can see right through him and is angry and viscerally angry at him throughout in a way that, like, I don't think, Fel- you know, Felix is, he's pretty, but he's dumb and does not read the room, right? So I think that's what's very interesting to me about him as you go forward. At first, he just seems like a mean boy, which he for sure is. Um, but yeah. there's a lot to that, I think. Yeah, I agree. He's just not willing to go as far as Oliver is. I got really big time Game of Thrones vibes while watching this of people trying to sort of scrap their way to the top. And again, yeah. it's just two very different situations of where you start in life. And, you know, there's something to be said about privilege in this film, but it's they're just trying to grab for every morsel they can. And you've got this Barry Keoghan character, Ollie, who we're told has worked his ass off and like done all his studies. He did all the summer readings. He is like trying to make his way in using hard work. 
And then you have Farley, who's more just trying to coast and get in with the family and sort of like play the game. He shows up late to the first day of, you know, his session with his mentor, whatever it is, tutor. Um, yeah. And it's like, oh, he's failed out of every class, that, every school that he's been in and all these other things. So it's these two very different characters who are going to butt heads throughout this film. Yeah, I think that they're you know, generally antagonistic towards one another the entire film. And it, to your point, it is clear in that very first meeting. You know, I, I, something you said I think is so key. He does want to coast. Farley wants to coast through everything, not just this family and money and whatever, but life. He yeah. hasn't done any of the reading. He's late to the meeting. He is attacking someone's rhetoric rather than the substance <laughs> of the material. And I love that Ollie calls him out for that. Farley has clearly gotten by by doing that, by doing half the work, right? I can misdirect. I can not do all the work. I don't have to lean in on this. I can just talk my way out of this. And that generally works for him, but it doesn't work for him with Ollie. Totally. Well, I feel like you have the nail on the head with those two. Well, they're such an interesting character pairing, but I think they're, you know, what's what the key is for both of them is Felix. So we got to talk about Felix mm -hmm. a little bit. Like he is the object of everyone's obsession. And this is played by Jacob Elordi, who is, I mean, unequivocally a very attractive man. Like, let's not get it twisted. I read an article that was like the most beautiful man in the world. And I was like, OK, calm down. But he is gorgeous. He is gorgeous. And popular. And well-known. And, well he's and all the same. But he's all the things. Yeah, he's all of that in this film. Like, he's got this aristocratic, cool guy vibe with like a little bit of an edge. You know what well, I mean? It was set in 2006. And at first yeah. I couldn't figure out why this was set in 2006. And then I realized they just wanted to give the handsome guy an eyebrow ring. So it's like, oh, he's rich and he has an eyebrow <laughs> ring. Whoa. What, how, how different. But fun fact about that, the studio was so fucking against that. And Emerald Fennel was like <laughs> fighting was for it? it. Because they said that they were like, why would you make the most beautiful man in the world have a stud in his eyebrow. They were like, why would you block part of his face? Why would you hinder his face? And she was like, that's his whole vibe. That's the era, blah, blah, blah. So the compromise was the line that was added in about his mother having a thing about Why facial crap about this? so mm. that it would come out for the whole session at Saltburn. So he was allowed to have it okay. at Oxford, but not allowed to have it in the scenes at Saltburn. And that's why it came out. Um, and it was, it was never so actually that it was sent then. Yeah, yeah, and it was actually never pierced. It was like a costuming, earring adhesive thing. Uh, it looks very legit, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, it does factor into the ending of the film. We won't get there yet, but that the time changed. I mean, they could have said it any time, but right. Janelle had a really good point about it. She said, well, maybe it's just when this director, when Emerald was in college or high school, and yeah. she wanted to make a film about that time period. She so has said like, that, that this yeah. is this is a representative of when she was in school. So she went to Oxford, right. if y'all didn't know. She went to Oxford and actually so did Rosamund Pike. So they're both Oxford uh, alumnus, different colleges, okay. but Oxford alumnus, both in English literature, uh, okay. which is why I vibe with both of them, because English degrees unite. And there's a bunch of nerdy references in here for that reason. Like, there really are. Like, you can see what she's referencing. She's translating it to film, obviously, but she is referencing literature repeatedly in this, in this film. And some of it's obvious and some of it's not. But yeah, she was trying to emulate her time at college, she said. Absolutely. No wonder. I mean, <laughs> I feel like it comes off authentically in that way because to get all that humor that she embedded in it, no wonder she was so close to it. She's like, listen, yeah. I remember someone saying this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if she knew a character like any of these guys, oh my gosh. 
<laughs> yeah, like senior year of high school. Also class of 2006, no big deal. Um, or not high school, sorry, college. God, okay, that so tolls hit me now. Okay, I went to college, everyone. I did go to college. And so graduated in 2006. But when I heard Block Party on the soundtrack, MGMT, Cold War Kids, I was getting excited every single time one of those songs would come on. So I thought that was very authentic to 2006. It was and such also a fun she throwback. did that with like Promising Young Woman that yes. like mm-hmm. had such a musical vibe to it, which was very similar, which I do dig how she seems to love that. And she has a very specific aesthetic, too. Like she makes she wants things to be pretty. Um, Yeah. You know, she wants the the costuming to be pretty. The set pretty. Yes. And that's such a great point of this whole film. It's uh, it's a lot of ugly things, but presented in a pretty way. Yeah. Okay. well, Felix is a nice dude, but I don't mean y'all tell me, like, is it worth is he worthy of this level of obsession? They are just enamored by him. Everybody, everybody girls and that's how the narration kicks us off at the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. he's just saying how everyone was so obsessed with him he says a line later like everyone's just putting on a show for you felix Mm -hmm. like he everyone is trying to appease this guy and he seems genuine he seems sincere he seems genuinely kind in a group of people who are not um and he's sort of accepted that these people are very classist and snobbish but he will say that to them like he, he I'll give him credit where it's due when people are being shitty to people he's like hey that's snobby hey that's shitty hey no you know Ollie come sit with us you know he tries to be a little bit more accepting than i think his counterpart so i think he's a good guy but i don't know i don't know that he's worthy of this level of obsession i don't know that i see it you know i, I think that I think it's interesting that at the beginning of the film, we have the unreliable narrator and we have this perception of Oliver as being this helpless, less off character who is being bullied by his classmates, doesn't really have many friends. And as soon as he gets befriended in this off chance with this, you know, local celebrity or country celebrity, maybe because he's royalty, but as soon as he gets this in, the first thing he's told is don't trust him. He's just using you. You're just his new pet. He's going to. And there are a couple moments where Ollie, I guess, does become kind of too much for Felix early on. And they almost sort of stop being friends for a second there. But it's interesting that we're set up at the beginning to believe that Felix is this discompassionate person. But throughout the film, I mean, he's not doing anything that any handsome 21 year old with money and he's still like uh, to your point Mackenzie doing good deeds he's helping to pay bar tabs and letting his friend take credit so that he doesn't have to show that he's he's not wealthy I I think that he does he doesn't do I don't hashtag Felix did nothing wrong I guess I don't know right because that's the whole thing that's what's so interesting is everybody else is saying how bad he is Mm -hmm. and he's the only nice one and he's leading him to Saltburn and he's also acknowledging his own family's faults. Mm-hmm. The whole time he's sitting there telling Ollie, like, you know, my mom's rich and she's whatever, right? And I think I remember that. And he's I making he excuses with, for like, them, yeah. Every character. Mm-hmm. But he's so like, is was he ever presented as a harm to Ollie in any way? It's more like his own fault for right. his obsession with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I like think it- the nice and the rich is how that Felix character is presented. And even the time that he fingered his cousin, it was by accident. So, <laughs> Yeah, don't forget. That was right? an accident. That yeah, was, I wanted true. more information out of that. I really did. <laughs> no, it's true. He's not, he's not presented as harmful. Uh, we don't know the rest of that story, but he's generally not presented as harmful, that's for sure. And, yeah. uh, But I don't think, 
I guess it is such a standout to your point, Taylor, of like being that wealthy and having all the access in the world and all the things you could want and also being nice. It, those things yeah. are generally mutually exclusive in, in a lot of situations. So it, it maybe just feels especially surprising for people. So I don't think that he is, um, I don't think he's anything special in that way as far as when you get to the nitty gritty of just being a good person. But you're right, like the combo of those things is so rare that that's probably why it stood out. But I will say, you know, one thing going back to what you said, Lamar, about how they have this blip where they're almost not friends. And this to me was not the first moment, but the first really obvious moment that I thought Ollie was an incredibly manipulative character. Mm -hmm. And because he gets back into his good graces after driving him nuts for by faking the death of his father like coming to his room crying and acting like his father who is from this terrible background that he's already you know laid the groundwork for and that he has died he was a drunk and he slipped and cracked his head on the pavement and whatever and it's such it's such a move like it felt you don't know a lot about him yet but it felt very disingenuous and I don't know if you guys thought that too but I didn't buy it like I didn't buy it when it was happening I thought the director did a good enough job of covering up some of those early plays, for lack of a better word, by Ollie. The bike, you know, having putting a hole yeah. in the tire. And then that conversation. I thought the director did a good enough job of structuring that where he gets on the phone with the mom and he just says, hi, mom. And then it immediately cuts to him in tears at Felix's door. So that's a good cover up there because for all we know, his mom just said, hey, how are you doing? Hey, how's dad? That's great. Hey, we're working in the garden. And then he was like, I can use this. And we don't know how Oliver's mind works. But I do think that it wasn't until, I'm trying to remember when exactly I started realizing that I think Ollie, and this is a credit to, to Barry Keoghan, because we mentioned a couple of his other films earlier where Banshees of Inishirin, he plays this adorable character who's just crushing hard on this woman yeah you know make it all this very romantic there's nothing creepy about it he's just he adores her and then in uh killing of a sacred deer he plays a sociopath essentially and just this so far removed and just vindictive character and it's a credit to his acting that he in this i was like okay it's either one or the other but it was actually a little bit of both and Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm not sure at what point i started sort of switching gears and realizing he I did write down in my notes that I think the first conversation with the mom where he's talking about dear old Pam and he points out the inconsistencies in the stories. I'm like, wait, this feels smarter than feels like, a it's like he's playing the game more than he's let on that he can. And it was I think around that point, I started watching him flip flop a little bit. So when the ending yeah. came, I did see a little bit of it coming, but I was still shocked by some of what happens. Well, and that's a good point of saying they're playing the game. And it Mm -hmm. is like eventually, right? You're catching on, like everybody's playing some sort of game. And so the question then becomes, why? Like, okay, so if you did, if you are making up that your dad just died, why? Even if something else happened, why are you doing this? Is it just to get closer to Felix or what is his motive? Like you're wondering that the whole time. I felt like that was his motive. Like he was just so... It was subtle things for me. You know, it's how he's watching him in the library, like from day one, how he sees him across the quad and stares at him through the window and how he totally dips on his friend at the bar when he pays the slightest bit of attention to him, which is such a dick fucking move. And at the end of the movie, you realize how fucked up that was because you thought it was just like, oh, he's got an opportunity to befriend the cool kids. And it's it's still dickish. 
but it's not till the end that you realize how easy he made that decision. Yeah, yeah he's been true. he's been making that decision since day one is what I would say. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like he has a plan, you know, and I think it was all those subtle things. And then it was just the way that last scene between them ended of you're driving me crazy. He literally to- tells him that he doesn't quite finish the sentence, but he does say it. Yeah. And then he's but then but then Ollie can't help but ask, OK, but I'll see you later. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and it and it's a callback later in the film where he's like, but we can still be friends right after he's clearly betrayed him again. And so he is so cloying and desperate for that attention, for that affection. And I just thought he this is too convenient. The timing is too convenient. There is no way that this actually happened. I don't know what happened, but there's no way that this is what happened. And you're making a move to get back into this nice man's attention is the thing. He knows that he's genuinely not a a mean, shitty dude, and it's going to make him pay attention to him. So I just felt like it was so purposeful. And eventually leads, you know, they continue to be friends. And that's what gets him invited back to Saltburn, which is where we spend... Mm -hmm almost the rest of the movie which is really interesting so gotta talk salt uh (laughs) what a cast of characters once we get there huh again i didn't see the trailer so i didn't know that we were ever gonna leave oxford and when we got there it was like oh okay we're gonna meet some new people and like i said the parents ended up being my favorite part but i do think it's interesting to see the dynamics sort of shift there i also want to tie back i think about 15 minutes prior to them getting there where the girl is waiting at Felix's door and he's not there and she doesn't know he's out and then starts to hook up with Oliver and says, oh, do you think he'll be jealous? And he says, I don't think he's even going to fucking care. And so she leaves. But I'm like, is that his mentality when he gets to Saltburn of channeling, oh, if I can make Felix jealous of me and his sister or me and Farley or me and anybody else here? At one point, my theory was, oh, he's just going to fuck every member of this family. Mm. He's just going to run the gamut. He kind of does. (laughs) I wondered uh, with the mother on some scenes, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. like there sure. was a tease there, like mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, there was. But I do think that's I mean, to your point, Lamar, I think that's intentional, right? Like he yeah. is manipulating all of these people, but he is open to any of those doors that will get him what he wants. And I think yeah. what he says yeah. to her about like, I don't think it'll register is because he is so aware of what it takes to register. I think the implication is women are disposable to Felix. Right. It seems to be these male relationships to whatever degree they may or may not be hetero or homosexual. Like there are these male relationships that seemingly have more of an impact to Felix than the women. He's making a rotation through all the women in the room, but he is always flirting with Ollie. He's flirting. He's flirting Mm -hmm. with everyone. This is a person who knows he's attractive, knows he's nice. And can get from literally everyone in the room probably whatever he needs or wants. And it's really easy with the women, right? They're fawning all over him. Is it as easy with the men? Is it easy to have a real friendship where somebody doesn't need or want something from you? Maybe that's harder for Felix. But I feel like those relationships become more front and center. But they're not they're not free of some, you know, romantic or sexual implications either. And I think that Ollie knows he doesn't really care if I fuck you. But yeah, if I do something <laughs> with, say, his sister or I do something to hurt him, that's going to have more of an impact. And it's kind of scary that Ollie already knows that. Sexuality in this is something that, that's, I think, a super interesting topic. Of, you know, that thing I said at the beginning, it's, it's a joke, but it is scarily accurate. 
And even I, th- I think sexuality is something in this that's both the center of attention, but it's also downplayed, almost like it's so fluid in this film. Even the mother at one point says, I, used, I was a lesbian was once a lesbian for like for two years, but it was too wet. Men are, men are dry. Like, oh my okay, God. So I wrote down, my, lesbians are too wet. My favorite is men <laughs> are so, her quote that. exactly was, men are so lovely and dry. <laughs> oh, that's like, amazing. I had forgotten like, about that one. I was like, oh my God. And she says <laughs> it was just some... I could deliver that. Like, I know. Every and with an air of like, you know, class about her. Like, how is mm-hmm. it coming out of, how are you saying something like right. that? Of like, what a mature woman to say something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, but again, the comic relief of it all. She's so, so funny. But yeah, I think fluid is the word, Lamar. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally the word, right? It's like, yeah. all of this is fluid. But I think, and and this is not a unique thought. This is something that Emerald, Emerald Fennell said in a very brief interview that I saw where she was like, this whole film is about desire. And it runs mm. the gamut of what kind of desire. Like it manifests in so many ways, right? It's not just sexual, it's everything. And that that need, that desire, that attainment is constant throughout. Um, but also it's about sexuality. And again, runs the gamut. Like she was asked, I think specifically, if this is a queer film. And she said, yeah, I think absolutely. But it's not, it's fluid. And she said that word exactly of it's very fluid and these characters are fluid about their own sexuality. But I think Ollie's the only one who uses it as a weapon, like visibly uses it as a weapon. And I think that's that's what makes him different. Yeah. And it's like a lot of that sexuality is presented in a grotesque way. And so it's like, then you're like forced to ask like, what turns you on? Like, does something Mm -hmm. turn you on about this? And if so, you have to ask yourself why, because this guy is engaging in this. And so you have to ask, why is he turned on by this activity? And it it develops. Like, I think it starts with the bathtub and where it's not even, it's more suggestive, but not, it's suggestive and literal. And then it escalates with the daughter and you're sitting there wondering, like, where is this all going to go with the sexuality? Yeah, I think you're wondering what you said, what you said is the key, I think, of what turns him on. And like, because you see him in these totally different interactions with this myriad of folks who are wildly different personalities, but all shoved into the same place. And he is a bit of a chameleon with each of them. He (laughs) gives me very, you know, uh, Tom Ripley vibes. This it it was the the whole ethos of it all was the same to me of like, this is another Tom Ripley. It was, by the way, a sociopath. And so he is just reading each room and he's being a chameleon in each of those rooms because he behaves one way in the in front of the entire family. He behaves one way when talking to just Elspeth outside Mm -hmm. and he gets sexual and flirty with her. He behaves one way when he's talking to Felix and he manipulates him a certain way. And he talks to Venetia a certain way and gets really assertive and controlling with her because he knows that's what she's going to respond to and leads to some other really intense, weird scenes. So it's like, I don't think he's turned on by any one of those people. I think he's turned on by the fact that he can do that. I think that might be your answer right there. I'm sitting here while, while you two were talking and thinking of just what does Oliver actually want? Because we, we talked about it earlier. Is it money? Is it power? Control. Is it for people to like him? Acceptance, control. And then going along the, the, the sexual line of things as well. It's, you know, he's hooking up with that girl at Oxford. Felix isn't probably even going to find out about it. So it's like, why is he doing that if not to get laid? He says the wrong thing and it doesn't happen. 
Yeah. But then he's doing these crazy things throughout the film. And it's like, is he turned on by this? Who does he want to have sex with? Does he just want to? And I think the answer to the to all of those questions is he just wants everything. Whatever yeah. is going to be the most, what can I get in this room right now? That's what he's going for. And that's, I think, why, Mackenzie, you did a great call out. It'd be interesting to see back to backs of the scenes of who's in the room with him as he's putting mm -hmm. on these performances to see how suave he is with one character while he's playing sort of like this befuddled other version of himself mm -hmm. with others. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think the answer is he just wants whatever he can get his hands on. He meets them where they are and mm -hmm. he he plays to his audience, I think, is the thing. And I think that that's thrilling for him is to be able to do that and make that shift and get what he wants. Like you said, get what he wants either from that situation or on the whole. But I think it's pretty clear, even at this point, that his overarching goal is to become a part of this family in one way or another, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, an honorary member or, you know, whether it is sexual, whether it is romantic, like, do I marry into this family? I don't think he cares how it happens. I think he cares that it happens. And but I think that Felix is a little bit of the chink in the armor. You know, Felix was his yeah. in. But I don't think you can hide that he genuinely is in love with Felix. I don't think that that's anything that you can get away from. And the bathtub scene we have to talk about. Because that was going to be my spoiler during the drink section. I also have Felix's bathwater over here to the oh left. Oh my so, God, <laughs> gross. Very well played. It's a little salty. It's a little salty. Oh, oh so gross. <laughs> Yikes. Ugh. Okay, well, let's explain the bathtub scene. I hope that if anybody is at this point in the pod, you have watched this movie by now. But if not, fuck, we're or about to hear it. Or you've read about the bathtub Or you've read about it. Or you have bought a rounds. bathtub from Alamo Draft House. We'll get <laughs> no. into that in a second. Oh, my God. So the bathtub scene causes an uproar because they are sharing a bathroom, as we know, because for some reason, this giant fucking house, the next bathroom is five miles away. So they're sharing a bathroom and he can hear uh, Felix jerking off in the bathtub. And for whatever reasons, Felix did not lock the door or whatever. And it is so well shot. It hones in on all yeah. the sexiest spots. It's like the music is great. The lighting is great. It's supposed to turn you on, right? But what's weird about it is that he is turned on, right? Like that, that Ollie is turned on by this, that he's watching it. And I think callback to your point at the, at the top, Taylor, about the shooting ratio. So it's like 133.1 or AKA 4.3, which is what old standard TVs used to be or full screen as they called it. And that was intentional. And she did that because she wanted it to feel like you were peeping in on the situation. And this is a very literal shot that is like that of he feels like he is a peeping Tom right now. And he is a peeping Tom. He's a voyeur right now. And but he's being so turned on by it. And then he takes it to the next level. And if anybody wants to finish the story, they can because oh, gross. Taylor, have at it. No. <laughs> See, we both hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that scene, I was just like, it, I have to say, one of the great things that I'm glad I got to see it in theaters was because of the audience reaction. Yeah. It was really great to be surrounded. Nobody in my theater reacted. It's so interesting you say that. Like, oh. there was a very, there was definitely a hush fill over the crowd vibe. But nobody like gasped and I wanted to. Gasp. Oh, people were. I, I was, was like gay gasping. <laughs> like I, yeah. I could not handle. Yeah. I'm like <laughs> when I'm freaked out, I like go silent, by the way. So it was very on brand yeah. for me. But I was surprised at everyone else. And I just was like, <laughs> man. Yeah. Janelle and I, we are avid Alamo draft house goers. So we tend not to talk during films when we're there. But because we were here and watching it on Prime, 
her the reaction was just as his as he got closer and closer and we we zoomed in on the drain it was she was just like no please no, please no. don't oh <laughs> no oh no and i also read on i think i was i jumped on reddit to see people's thoughts there in the, in the the movie boards there and i heard people say that they'd close their eyes when they were watching that but they said just hearing the sound was even worse because the yeah, sound in that is just slurp. so gross it's a, yeah yeah it's a literal <laughs> slurp it's like a oh god yeah. i can't i can't believe i just did that but yes yeah, i think i covered my eyes later i didn't cover film. my eyes i will say but i i stared at it with revulsion and just you know to not beat around the bush he sucks up the jizz water like he yeah. Yeah. just slurps yeah. it off the bottom of the partially drained the drain. bathtub licks the drain down there literally yeah. licks the drain and again he's taking, <laughs> he's taking his time and it's another callback to something that venetia says later and I love it. It was oh. it's something I noticed on the second watch of. She said, you just ate him up and you mm. licked the fucking plate. Oh, and it's so literal in that bath scene. He is licking the mm. plate of Felix oh. live then. And she just something I think is really mm. interesting about Venetia while we're on it is I think she is so fucking insecure. Poor girl that mm. she can't yeah. say out loud what she's thinking. But what she is thinking is fucking true. She can read him like a book. And she knows exactly who he is and she knows exactly what he's doing. And she calls him out and she says it to him in the most overt way of almost any other character recurring throughout the film. And then, of course, at the very end there, she says a ton to him that is very, very accurate and clear. But I just remember watching it the whole time and being like, Venetia knows exactly who he is, but she won't say it. She's Mm -hmm. too insecure. She's too scared to say it. She's too scared because... Felix is the center of this story of this show. He runs the show. And if Felix wants him there, then she won't say anything against him. But I think she's the one who reads him better than anybody, especially early on. Is it because she wants to be that too? You know, like she has that same exact desire that he has to be that center of the rotation of her own mother is like, you'll never be anything. I mean, yeah, yeah. her mother's so terrible. The things that she says about her. Oh my God! They talk about her bulimia very oh casually, God. and it's yeah, like like about clearly this woman is so not valuing herself, and nobody around her is helping her. No, she <laughs> says like put fingers for pudding, you know, like it's so funny, and she's like, oh, oh God, I thought she'd true. grow out of yeah. it. Like you never dealt with it, you never did anything about it, and she's like, and yeah. it wasn't even worth it. Look at her, yeah. you know, like what a horrible thing yeah. to say about her arguably beautiful daughter, you know. Uh, but she just doesn't hold a candle for whatever reason to Felix in their minds. And yeah, I think it's because she does want that. She wants, she doesn't want to ruffle those feathers. She does want to be accepted into this family. And I, and like, she feels like a black sheep in her own way. I think, I think nobody feels comfortable in their own skin, but Felix. And they're all very blithely unaware of everything happening around them. And I I see a lot of parallels between him and Elsbeth. Like they talk about her getting bored of her toys. They talk about Felix getting bored of his toys. Like, and I don't even think it's malicious. I think they do. They just get bored. They just want to move on. They want to do the next thing. They want to meet a new person. They just want to be intrigued by something else. And, and so they're very similar in that way. And I think you see why she loves Felix so much, maybe more than Venetia and is so cruel. Uh, you know, to somebody that she sees as like a little bit weaker with not the same self-esteem and and how could you? And I think Ollie plays right into that relationship on both sides, stirs that pot. I think I want to segue really quick, just backtracking a little bit off of what you were just talking about, Mackenzie, of the characters in this with maybe the exception of Felix just are not likable in, in many ways. I mean, it's a funny film. It is definitely a dark comedy, 
Mm-hmm. But the characters in this, for all the reasons you just said, just not likable at all. And these are the films that I was referencing earlier in our pre-spoiler section of things like The Menu and things like Triangle of Sadness. And going back to my yeah. earlier call out of American Psycho and Rules of Attraction, these are all the wealthy, you know, the elite. And yeah. people might ask, is this a horror movie? And I would say it's it's a horror movie, but it's not a scary movie. It's like an uneasy you're you're watching these bad things happen, but you don't particularly care. It's like watching a slasher take place from the 80s. You don't mm-hmm. love any of the characters. They're kind of assholes. And so you want to see them get punished. But still, what you're seeing is kind of horrifying. And I think that's still rings true here. It is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because he leads like that. And he 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 threads that in throughout. He even says, I'm a fucking vampire. And mm-hmm. he says it in another very disconcerting scene with Venetia where you know, she is on her period and he says that that's not a deterrent to hooking up for her. And listen, there are a lot of us folks in the world who menstruate and we all have different feelings about that. Maybe I personally found that incredibly grotesque and the way in which he handles it. Right. Like it's just he literally licks the blood. He like it, it gets very graphic. Right. And that was really gross and alarming. Also, it felt like a violation of her for the first half of it. Felt like she didn't necessarily want it. And then she allowed it to happen. And you want her to feel like she can say no. So there's a certain horror in that. And then there's that he calls it out. He says, like, I'm a fucking vampire. And it's it's it turns out to be so true. He sucks the blood of this entire family in one way or the other. And I think he comes to this this head with with Felix as well. If he Felix is not going to give him what he wants. And so he takes what he wants anyway. And in that way, he's a real monster throughout, for sure. Yeah, I think that um, I wanted to call this out earlier, but now's a better time probably, is you mentioned the quote of when Farley was criticizing the essay that Ollie wrote. And mm-hmm. I think when the movie wrapped up and we were discussing, you know, what, what would you categorize this as? And I said, I think it's a dark comedy. Like there's some horror elements, there's some other things, but I think at the end of the day, it's a dark comedy. Um, and we sort of, Janelle and I sort of disagreed a little bit on that, but I said, maybe it's a callback to when Farley says, it's not the subject matter, it's the way that you tell it. So there are horrifying, terrible things happening in this, Yeah, but it's, most of them are played for laughs. I mean, there are things meant to, Mm -hmm. I don't know about offend, but just to put you on edge and make you uncomfortable. But then two minutes later, you're laughing again at just this awkward situation. Literally a character dies and then there's lines of like, Come along, darling. Lunch is ready. And yeah. like, there's these the, the cops keep getting lost in the hedge maze where our yeah. son's dead body is. So it's yeah. it's definitely a dark comedy in my eyes. Yeah, I think so. It is kind of hard to genreify it. And even like promising young woman was that way too. It's interesting, mm-hmm. like y'all saying the quote because Emerald Fennel is clearly playing games with us on that and like <laughs> mm-hmm. being her own self referential with her characters. Yeah. Because I had somebody ask me, what is the genre? And I was like, oh, I would partially describe it as horror because I was horrified by some of that. Yeah. But I don't want you to think that you're going into like a slasher movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think dark comedy is probably the most fair assessment. And, you know, to your point, has very like triangle of sadness, the menu vibes as well. Like, I think that is kind of the general, you know, this film overall. I think you're either laughing because something is genuinely funny or you are laughing because you are so uncomfortable and it's you're either going to laugh or you're going to cry, you know, or or gay gasp and horror in Taylor's case. Either Mm -hmm. one. They're all valid reactions. (laughs) Did you say gay gasp? 
<laughs> That's what. Oh, yes. gay gasp. Yeah. Can it's I hear what gasp. a gay gasp sounds like, please? Oh gosh, I, no! I'd have to watch it. Let me pull up the scene. I was going to say, like, play it live because then you will. You really want to hear <laughs> the genuine gay gas? Because the poor woman to the left of me was. <laughs> she like jumped. She Ooh. heard it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a valid reaction, is what I would say okay. oh, for yeah. sure. Right. Whenever you're ready, I'd like to hear it at some point before the end of this podcast. So if I say something well, shocking, feel free to. We'll go have guess. to do a, a group um, salt burn screening. Okay. There you go, because you'll see it live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. That'll, so that'll be featured was, on the socials. No pressure. Uh, mm. So I was gonna, I was gonna say backtracking to. I think American Psycho is the movie that I would put this next to and say, this is probably the closest thing I can find where I'm laughing for 80% of it. And then I am not like grossed out, but just, yeah, super uncomfortable for the other 20%. So I'd say if you're a fan of American Psycho, fan is a strong word, but if you, you know, enjoyed that That's experience in some way, yeah, yeah. then I would highly recommend Salt Burn as a, as a double feature, I guess. Just I would marry that with Talented Mr. Ripley. Like, mm-hmm. I think... yeah. That a talented Miss Ripley like came through so hard for me throughout, but I absolutely see what you're saying with American Psycho, especially from the humor aspect. Like mm-hmm. talented Mr. Ripley is not as humorous. There's definitely like a few lighthearted things and some funny lines, but like generally that's a that's a drama thriller, you know. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a really interesting correlation. But yeah, I think talented Mr. Ripley, especially from the manipulation standpoint, especially because he comes off at the very beginning as very naive and he kind of is, you know, but he reads the room and he learns quickly and he manipulates so well everyone throughout that you're like, he's only so naive. And has he done this before in a more amateur yeah. way? Yeah. And he's really just refining these skills on this family because he's not afraid to do the work. We've seen that, right? He's proven mm-hmm. he's not afraid to do the work. And I think he does the work and he adjusts and he pivots and he becomes a really lethal character. Um, the development of a sociopath. Yes. Like, this is a six-month <laughs> development like, of a sociopath. Really. I found that strange, though, because I didn't read him as a straight sociopath because of the emotional connection that he felt with Felix. I'm like, of all the characters that die in this, Felix is the only one who he has sex with his gravesite and tries to impregnate the Earth. Like, why is that a thing yeah. if he doesn't feel anything? But yeah. I think, okay, two things, because uh, we got to spend some time on that. But one, I would say, I think the main reason he feels like a sociopath is his general lack of empathy. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Felix is the exception. I agree. But I don't think he genuinely cares for anyone else involved. Okay. I, he will use yeah. anyone else to his own end. He is at the height of manipulation, which is just peak sociopath. He has, is generally antisocial and behaviors like you see him at the end. He is by himself and he is loving it. He is. <laughs> he couldn't. He's happy as a clam. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't need anyone else. He just wants the thing that he wants and will do anything to get it. And I think that's where it truly does feel like sociopathic behavior. But again, I agree. I think Felix is the cheek in the armor. I think he's the one thing that gets to him and breaks his heart. And to that end, to your point, he ultimately poisons him and kills him because he won't let him in. He won't let him love him. He won't let him be a part of this family. He has betrayed him by, you know, Felix has found out about all his lies and he doesn't trust him and he's out because why wouldn't he be? And he can't deal with that, so he kills him. Because what he ultimately wants is salt burn, this life, this access. And if he can't have Felix too, then he'll do it without him. And But I think you do see his genuine heartbreak at the grave of this is the last chance for him to touch this person in any way. And this was like the literary bit that I was going to call out of, this is very Wuthering Heights. This is like Heathcliff digging up Catherine, her grave, because she's dead and it's his last chance to touch her. And 
Like to me, this is a very similar. This is where her like her English lit nerd of it all is coming out. The whole thing is Brideheads re- revisited. Like the whole thing yeah. is very Evelyn Woe. It's called out in the script. He says, you know, Evelyn Woe based a bunch of her characters off my family. And it jives. Mm. Like the story is very similar. And I think that's another one of those throwbacks of like Heathcliff is desperate to touch Catherine for one last time. And I think you see that here with him and Felix where he's like, this is the only way I'm just, I'm grief stricken. And this is the only thing I can think to do right now. And it's horrifying. Horrifying. (laughs) Did you gay gasp at that, Taylor? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's like a hundred percent. I mean, there were a lot. I mean, I, it's funny because I forgot about the grave scene until (gasps) a few days ago when I was talking to my brother about it. And that was another moment where I was like, oh, my God, and you're just like watching it evolve. And you're like, is this what's going to happen? And then it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to block it out at a certain point. Yeah. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. oof, oof. I think I did with some things. It's so fun to revisit it. You know, it's one yeah. step from necrophilia. It's horrifying. Oh. It's. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm surprised it didn't. No. So with, oh, with us <laughs> talking about, you know, the, the eventual character deaths in this, how did you both feel? about the reveal and the way like did you see any of it coming i think we all had tidbits of oh there's more here than he's letting on but how did you feel about the actual reveal of how much of it was orchestrated i did want to point out that for 16 years and that's where the year of it taking place in 2006 until 2022 when james dies and he sees the article in the paper and he orchestrates getting back in touch with elspeth for 16 years, he's content to just be rich off the money that he was paid but off to leave that. Saltburn. I, mm-hmm. Okay, fair, fair. But he hasn't fucked with this family, so to say he wants Saltburn, but he's just waiting maybe 15 years for him to die. But how did you feel about that reveal of here's everything I did along the way? Did you enjoy that? Did you think it was necessary? What are your thoughts? Okay, I think, right, in like some of that narration you do get the sense that he was so longing for Saltburn. He was always Mm -hmm. longing to get back. And so it's like, okay, he got away from all that crazy stuff that he did, but he wasn't happy with Mm -hmm. it. It was still there. And then he had to go back and you see the rest of it. And that's when it was once he went back with Rosamund Pike character and on the, well, not the hospital bed, but at Saltburn. um, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you are, okay. that's who you are and i was like i don't know that i needed this but maybe i did because you needed to see it get to such a point which is yeah i think he's playing the the long con yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i totally agree i think he's he has had all this time to think about it and i don't think he's been content by any means i think he has gone off and refined these same skills in a bunch of other ways and he got a paycheck to do it you know what i mean he was literally paid to go away There is every reason to think he asked for an exorbitant amount of money from this heartbroken man who just wanted him to leave. Mm -hmm. And he knew he could play that fiddle at that time as well. That's why he pushed as hard as he did to stay. And I think he took a big fat paycheck to go be tied it over until such time as he could find another in. And I think, you know, maybe he didn't anticipate this man dying or anything. But once he did, he certainly took advantage of the opportunity. Um, But I don't think that that means that he was, you know just chilling between then and and now that we see him at the end i don't think he was you know just innocently going about his day or doing a job he certainly doesn't seem like he was and i think he is thrilled to get back into it you know what i mean like i am gonna get what i finally wanted to get and here's my in and here's the person that is the exact right person to give it to me 
Um, and I, I, yeah, I think it's very purposeful. And I think he plays her again, like a fiddle, yeah. exactly the way that, that he thinks that he can. Uh, and the reveal is very well done. I will give you that. I don't think I was surprised by it per se. I was like, cool. Every manipulative bone in his body that I noticed is absolutely valid. And, you know, everything I assumed about him is true. I was surprised the context. I was surprised that she was on her deathbed, basically. Uh, but and that he wasn't speaking to police or any of that, like I said, on that mm -hmm. first watch. But I wasn't surprised by the ultimate outcome at all. Um, and I was and I was not surprised that he was there alone. And I think that was like his fate. Right. Like they don't even show any of the servants. You know what I mean? He is so isolated in this place, but it's called Saltburn. Everything has always been about Saltburn. And I think he finally got it and he's more than satisfied. So it's really weird because everyone dies and he wins. and you don't want him to win, but he wins. He wins everything he yeah. wanted to win. He, he Ollie, has gotten, oh. has reached the end and, and has kind of achieved his goal, so to speak. I was just joking about, you know, he got what he wanted and he, you know, dances naked around and like, it ends with like the tokens of the character or whatever, right? Yeah. Like him kind of like, like manipulating the, the, with the four dolls? stones on remember. top from their and like the gravestones. Yes. Yeah. 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 And he literally presses the button and makes them dance. You know what I mean? It's very yeah. like you're going to do you're all gone and you're dead. And I got exactly what I wanted from you. And now we're going to dance. All right. Yeah. Well, there's three of us yeah. here, so there's not going to be a tie. Was that Barry Keoghan's real penis or was it a prosthetic? It was his real penis for my understanding. Real penis? Yeah. I agree. Real, real and penis. I have to say, my brother is convinced that it's a prosthetic, which I mean, certainly could be, but it just never crossed my mind. Um, I just I feel like so. if you were doing that long of a scene, you you probably went all in. He also said he didn't allude to that specifically, but he was interviewed about mm. the graveyard scene and like mm. he was talking about how he felt very exposed and that he had requested a closed set. So it was just Emerald Fennel uh. and the cinematographer Sandgren. So I, I just never, yeah, I didn't assume a prosthetic. And listen, I don't like need it, but also I'm all equal rights, right? If we're going to see a bunch of boobs, like we should see dicks too. Totally. Like, <laughs> let's do it, you know? So I was here for it. It was a very shocking ending, but it was, I mean, I don't know. It kind of, we went, we it went did. out with a bang. Yeah. I think it just totally fit. And it's just, again, it's like this, I feel like you're just watching this beautiful sociopath. And <laughs> like, I enjoyed watching him, you know, dance along and have a good time. And then it's like, why am I enjoying watching this crazy guy who just did all of these bad things? You know, yeah. it was such yeah. a great way to end it. <laughs> I did I think laugh. it leaves you torn. Yeah, to your point. You don't want him yeah. to win, but you're like, he's having fun and you're kind of, yeah, rooting for him. Sometimes the bad guy's got to win. Yeah. I was going to say I did laugh because they do comment on it earlier in the film where he's their naked sunbathing. And I think mm -hmm. Farley says, well, good for you after he yeah, sees him drop trout. And I'm like, has Barry, Barry Keoghan just had like a, a huge penis this whole time? And like, they just wouldn't let him do it in Dunkirk. He's like, can there be nudity in this role? No. OK, OK, I'll just no. I'll wait. I'll wait. But this well, you know, he's he must five so, eight, so he was probably waiting for his chance to shine. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, I may look short, but like. I'm good. There was, He's just going to retire from Hollywood this year. He's like, I'm done. That's, that's all I wanted. That's yeah. all I wanted. I checked the box. I'm good to go. Ugh. Can we touch on a couple final topics before we wrap up? Just yeah, real yeah. Quick? Final thoughts. Oh, final yeah. thoughts. I think the humor in this might have been my favorite part because it, it is very difficult to take this subject matter, like we said earlier, and make it a fun watch, for lack of a better word. Yeah. You know, for all of the uncomfortable moments in this and how terrifying this character can be, it's a fun watch. Did yeah. you guys have a favorite 
line or moment? Oh man, there there are a lot. I will say, um, <laughs> I I liked. It wasn't a, a verbal, but it did make me laugh out loud. I don't know why. I liked when uh, the nerd character, Michael Gabby's character, uh, bit the chocolate bar right in, in the, the middle side. that he brought him, and he was like, "Here, do you want this crunch bar? I got it for you." And then literally thirty seconds later, is like, "But are you going to eat it?" And he's like, "No, you can have it." And like mm-hmm. a fucking monster bites it in the middle. And I was like, what just happened? Oh I was so alarmed. See, that's the real sociopath. I don't okay. remember that. <laughs> that is the yeah, real right? sociopath. Yeah. For that's sure. So funny. I thought that was hilarious. I, I thought it was hilarious. I was it was subtle. Say anything that a Rosamund Pike mouth and the movie was like the best thing. I don't remember <laughs> what was said. I need to go back and watch it. But in the scene with her and Barry Keegan he's laying back and they're waiting for Beetle or something and there's just some really good banter between them I know exactly what you're talking about he's trying to call her he hits on her and he tries to call her attention to Pamela it's when he starts to manipulate her about Pamela and he's like I started to notice the inconsistencies in her stories and I just assumed you had as well which of course she hadn't because she's a fucking idiot and she's like I had I had absolutely and it's just so funny how she delivers it of like "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm but she I love all her calls to your point of how how much she doesn't care about things she's talking about that song later about common people and how she hung out with all those bands and how they thought common people was written about her but the first line is about how common people like in that song and common people about how she's like wants to travel the world and she wants to learn everything and she's like but it couldn't possibly be i've never wanted to learn anything like she, <laughs> that's right yeah she's so self-aware she's like terrible but yeah. so self-aware so self-aware yeah. speaking of her and pamela or pam i liked it when they were like, oh, we have to go to London for what? For a funeral. And whose funeral? Pam. And Oliver's, Pam died? And she's, oh, she'd do anything for attention. That line? That's, <laughs> yes. It's yes. so good. I remember so that. Yes. Harsh. So harsh. And wow. It's yeah. So and I good. love that whole scene at the dinner where she's like trying to get Pam to leave. She's yeah. like, oh, yeah. and it's great That's to live great. all in one room, Awkward. you know? It, I've never, it's so much easier to clean, you know? Like she's just not. Yeah. She's not subtle at all, but she, again, she does all of it with this air of class that, you know, you don't feel like you're being roasted. It's like you've heard of passive aggressiveness, but this was aggressive passiveness. Just get the fuck out of my house. (laughs) (laughs) I also like the interaction that they had where I can't remember what the story was, but where Rosamund Pike's character is like, oh no, it's giving me goosebumps. Look. And she goes, oh no. That one got me really good too. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, there's. Oh, speaking of goosebumps, before I forget, I don't know if y'all noticed. There's a scene at the at the dining room table at breakfast where they're talking about the Shelley, um, mm-hmm. Shelley's biography, and how Shelley's, I think it's sister, is telling about how they thought they saw him wave through the window at one point, and it turns out that he was miles away, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere else entirely. But then a couple hours later, he drowns. And they're all at the dinner table or the breakfast table. Felix and everybody is there. But you see Felix walk behind her in that scene through the window. He walks what? behind Venetia. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And I didn't see that on the first watch. I saw it on the second watch. And it is so foreshadowing of yeah. you guys yeah. in, a, in a little bit here. Oh, goodness. Very good. More allusion to horror, <laughs> to your point. Yeah. I think. The last thing that I wanted to comment on, because we had we had mentioned it during the spoiler free section, but just the way that Emerald shoots this. And there were two scenes that stood out to me of just having this anxiety ridden cuts 
and cinematography. The first one was when Oliver first goes in to meet the entire family. They're doing these, they're having this quick bantery dialogue and he's being pulled in a million directions and the camera's just shooting from character to character to character and it's very overwhelming. And then that comes back around later on in the film after Felix has died and they're having that awkward lunch where they're doing these quick cuts to put you on edge of all this is going yeah. on. And they're trying to shut out that anything bad has happened but the butler keeps coming in and saying there's problems with the body we have to do this we have to close the curtains then it becomes yeah. this red room red. while uh venetia is pouring the red wine and just overflowing just her glass over. that entire sequence to me just speaks volumes to the talent as a director i think yeah. so and i think in house farley there too is another key moment like he doesn't Car farley's the only one he doesn't kill Right. To get rid of or kill indirectly or, or want to be yeah. dead. Uh, he gets him ousted from the family permanently by throwing him under the bus that while Felix is dying, which he's responsible for. So the irony of him making right. people feel guilty, uh, you know, he's, you know, Farley is out, you know, doing lines of coke with, uh, all across the party. And mm -hmm. that's the straw that breaks the camel's back for them. And they're they're done with him. He's gone. You never see him again. And you see him devastated by that. And that has been a culmination of that antagonistic relationship the entire film. And it has been a who's going to win this battle. And that's the moment he wins it. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that whole scene is incredible. Agreed. Cool. Oh, well, I love it. Okay, so intense, but in I think a really interesting, intriguing movie, even if you don't love, love, love it because it is very controversial and there's some very difficult scenes. I think it's definitely worth a watch. Like I said, I watched it this morning, so it's pretty fresh. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's worth a watch for sure. All right, homies. Well, thanks for joining us. Taylor, what an amazing guest appearance. I'm so glad yes. we could come talk about this, talk about the bathtub scene, yes. talk about all those things. I know. We finally, it is so nice to talk about this movie. I've talked about it with my partner and a couple other people, um, but it does get, when you really dissect it, it's so funny. I think. I've yeah, learned that we need a, a support group, Taylor, for people who watched this bathtub scene. And maybe we can get 10 yeah. or 12 of us in a circle and we could talk about how it made us feel and just mm -hmm. let's get past this together. I think we all need know? to heal yeah. from this. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Definitely. I think, you know, Emma Funnel just... never makes it easy on us. I'll, I'll say mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You know, her work we is not. make it a spa day. No. No. <laughs> 100% not. I don't want to go near a tub. Ugh. <laughs> all right well thank you for joining us taylor it's been so awesome having yeah, you thank also you, taylor. thank Thanks you to all. the fans hopefully for coming back with us and spending your new years with us come back next week for a tbd episode because we would like to tap you folks for what you would like to hear next we've got some ideas for sure plenty um but we we figured our new year's gift to you could be a brand new app of your own request but for now <laughs> go have a drink and watch a thing cheers cheers, cheers.